Well, my, uh, my wife Ashley and I love to go to the theater. That wasn't another day when that sort of thing was allowed, but that was one of the things we've loved to do over our years together. When we first started dating, my parents lived in New York City at 51st and 1st. And so for us to go visit my parents was to go into the city and we'd always uh, try to catch a show. So like we were growing to love one another in kind of the pinnacle of getting to see and experience live theater. And one of the greatest experiences was uh, we got to sit on the second row for Phantom of the Opera. And so for she and I, that was, that was really exciting. Second row, middle. It felt like at times I was pretty sure they were singing to us. Like we would lock eyes and, you know, Phantom singing and Christine. And, and there's this one point, if you're familiar with the show, where the chandelier comes down from the ceiling to the stage and it felt like it was going to land on us. We were like, oh my goodness, this is, it was, we were enveloped into the flow of this show. And then fast forward about 10 years, we were in seminary and I was trying to do something special for my wife uh, on a seminarian's budget. And so I got show, I got tickets to a show in Boston. I don't recall the show, which might be evidence already as to what the experience was like. I bought partially obstructed tickets, which are the ones that we could afford. And there were actually two balconies. There was one balcony where you could see the stage, and there was a second balcony where you could see parts of the stage. And we were in the back of the second balcony. And so I was trying to be romantic and kind in the midst of the season where we weren't getting to do those sorts of things. But there we were in the back, leaning, and at times going, I wonder what's going on on that side of the stage. It sounds like maybe something, but... And, and really, truly, I, for, I forgot to talk to her as I was, I, was, I was thinking about this illustration. I forgot to ask her if she remembers what play we saw. I cannot recall because it was so far removed. We did not feel like we were part of the action. We did not, you know, when they hit the high notes, it wasn't like the, uh, the hair was standing up on the back of our necks. It was more like, what was that, you know? And as we're, we're together marching through what it looks like to be on the seven-mile road, and I was thinking about that experience as it relates to the portion of the seven-mile road that we're talking about this morning. And if, if you're new to this, the, the seven-mile road, it, the name of our community is taken from Luke chapter 24, a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus just after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And, and their journey on this road is what gives us shape as a community, the way that we think about that journey. It took shape in three different simple movements. One is that they journeyed together, sharing their story freely. We talked about that together last week. Then they beheld Jesus. They really saw Jesus in his resurrected glory. And then after they saw Jesus for who he was in the Old Testament scriptures and in his resurrected person, they spread hope by running back to Jerusalem and telling everyone that the king is alive and we have hope. And so we think that the Christian life, our journey together as a community, unfolds on that path. Rinse and repeat. We want to journey together and behold Jesus and spread hope. This morning, the text that was read for us, and what we're going to do is we kind of explore what it means to behold Jesus. What I want us to consider is this. We have the opportunity, the invitation, as the people of God, to have unmitigated front row access to the glory of Jesus. Yet, if we're honest, so often we live like we've got partial obstruction in the second balcony. 
Like when we talk about the core of what it means to be on the seven mile road, the core of what it means to be this family, for us to lean in on what it is that we think God's calling us to be. What we've said in in 2021 is we want to be on the road again. We want to be disciples with burning hearts that are on this road. And right there at the center of it is this vision of Jesus. The eyes of faith and the ability to see Jesus in all of his glory and his majesty. And so the invitation this morning as we we plunge into this text and try to explore this portion of the Seven Mile Road is to consider what does it mean What does it mean to have unveiled access, front row, unmitigated access to the glory of Jesus? And the way that we're going to do this in studying 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 18, real simply, we're going to sketch out in this text, what does it look like to have veiled access? What is the partial obstructed view from the second balcony? What's that like? What do the scriptures tell us about that? And then we're going to talk about, well, what does it look like to be up here on the front row and to really be able to see Jesus in all of his glory? And then we're going to ask, well, how do we, how do we progressively and conclusively make a movement from, from that place to this place? You with me? So let's see if we can make sense of 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 18 together. Uh, just, just a brief bit of context. Paul, as the church planter of this church in Corinth in the first century, kind of has a, had a tough relationship over the years that he planted this church and this church has been led astray by other more flashy preachers that are preaching different doctrines and are, are kind of propping themselves up. And so Paul has sent a series of letters. We have 1 Corinthians. There's some other letters that are lost. We don't know quite how many, but we know that in 2 Corinthians, he's kind of forging some reconciliation to what has been a tested relationship between the church planter and the church and, and the ways that they've struggled to stay in alignment with God's plan for them. This is in some ways a letter of reconciliation and he's laying in the portion that we're going to read. I'm just giving us context because we're plunging into the middle of a letter here. Is that he's actually laying the context for the sort of ministry he had among them. What does it mean that, that he is ministering the gospel in the world? And he's talking about the ways that we have access to Jesus and can be set loose on this similar ministry. And so I want us to pay attention to verses 12 to 18. Let's first talk about what is the nature of a veiled experience of God's glory? How do you know if you are having a partially obstructed second balcony view of Jesus, there's three marks in this text, and the first is this. Your access to him is always secondhand. Let's read together. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 3, and let's start in verse 12 and 13 and see the sort of secondhand access that marks a veiled experience of Jesus. It says this, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. This is the hope that he's sketched out in the verses before that Jesus has done a work that's even greater than Moses by the power of the Spirit working in our hearts, writing God's word on our hearts, not just scrawling it on stone. He says, we have this hope that there's this grand thing happening, so we're very bold. He says, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, what's that all about? Got to do a little bit of history to understand what Paul's, the argument Paul's making. When Moses had led the people of Israel out of slavery, remember they were in Egypt with Pharaoh, Pharaoh let my people go, and Moses splits the Red Sea by, by God's power and leads the people out, right? And Moses, when they were out in the wilderness, began to, he went up on the mountain to meet with God, and he'd come back. And when he came back, his face was radiating light, 
like from being in the presence of the glory of God in such a way that was awesome and fearful and, and actually enticing. And the people didn't totally know what to do with Moses and all of his radiating glory. And so when he would come to them the first time down the mountain and then subsequently after he'd go into the tent of meeting and meet with God, he'd come back and he'd be shining. And for the few moments he'd meet with them and he'd tell them, this is what God just told me. And his radiating flesh was evidence that this was, in fact, a divine revelation. And they would look, and they'd be amazed, and they'd listen. And then afterwards, Moses would put a veil over his face and live among the people. You may have never considered this, but Moses, after going up on Mount Sinai, as best we can tell, the rest of his life, while he was living with the people, had a veil over his face, except for when he was declaring to them the word of God. And it says here the reason was because the people wanted to gaze at the glory that was coming to an end. So what's going on here? Is Moses ashamed of the fact that I'm radiating for a moment, but then I become more dull over time? I don't think so. The Old Testament nor the New Testament upholds that. What is Moses doing? He's actually protecting these people from becoming fascinated with secondhand glory. It's a merciful act that they, they start to look at him and go, this is amazing. And it says they want to, the, the word there for gaze means to, to set like a, a, an intense gaze. Like they want to look at him until every ounce of glory is gone. They just want to go, oh, Moses. And out of mercy to the people, he puts a veil over and goes, I'm not going to let you gaze at secondhand glory. It's not good for your soul. You see, the first experience of a veiled a veiled recognition of God is that it's always secondhand access. I just want to ask this question to you. Do you live your spiritual life vicariously through others? Like as a kid, we're meant to. We draft off of our parents. That's family discipleship, and we're passionate about that. We should create cultures in our home that allow kids to draft off of the passion and the commitment of their parents. But at some point, as we become adults, the question is, have we begun to meet with God? Like, are we experiencing him? Or are we still drafting off of others? Are we always trying to get our selfie with Moses? Like, I remember uh, Francis Chan came to Houston a few years back, and he addressed the Houston Church Planning Network, a group of church planners in the city. I love this ministry. I sit on the board of this ministry. And Chan came and addressed us. And he said, don't spend your whole life trying to get a selfie with Moses, thinking that's a person that really experiences God, and I just want to be close to them and know them thinking that if I'm a serial podcaster, blogger, if you're the sort of person I've been around, I was so glad for that word from Chan because I've been around some of these church planners I'm training and others that they know what every pastor in America, every prominent pastor, what they're preaching, what they're doing, what they said about this or that issue. Maybe you're that, you're like a serial podcaster. Nothing wrong with it, but I do think at some level, God might say, quit listening to sermons and meet with me. Like, quit drafting off of someone else's experience of God. Quit taking selfies with Moses and go up the mountain. (laughs) Like, there's this reality that a secondhand experience of God's glory is always drafting off of someone else. It may be husbands that you're drafting off of your wife's faith. It may be that she's constantly going, "We, we need to wake up and get the kids ready. We need to go to worship. We need to be engaged. I need you to... And so you're here because... She makes you be here. It may be that a friend or a roommate is, is, is someone that is experiencing God and you're drafting off of that. The first reality, the first note that we're in the second balcony with partial obstruction is we're just trying to get a selfie with Moses. We're drafting off of someone else's experience, right? 
The second, the second is this. The second kind of marker that you have a veiled experience of God's glory is that your mind has grown hard. Let me see if I can make sense of this to you in the text. In verse 14, so, so the first word in verse 14, do you see it there, is, is but. So this is an adversity from before. So Moses is putting his veil over his face, protecting the people from looking at secondhand glory, from looking at his experience of God and ultimately even what he's revealing to them, which isn't the full story. It's just the law that's going to pave the way to Jesus. He's going, this isn't the whole story. Don't stare into this thinking it will deliver. It says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. What he means is, even still, the Jewish people that read the Old Testament thinking that they can fully understand the character and the revelation of God, that their commitment to this text is looking at secondhand glory. He's saying that, that still today, the, the, the veil remains for those that are unwilling to see that that can't fulfill. In essence, I, I believe for our purposes, what, what Paul is saying is this. That a veiled experience of God's glory leads to a hardened mind, an inability to understand all that God is revealing. Having perpetual secondhand access to the glory of God, perpetual secondhand access to the glory of God, drafting off of someone else's faith perpetually will in time make your mind diamond hard to the things of God. Do you follow that? Like I know some of, I, I know some of these folks that They've sat in churches for 20 and 30 and 40 years because someone dragged them. I go because that's what we do. I go because the kids need some good morals in their life. And so, you know, we go and we sit in church. We go and do this thing. And what begins to happen is that the things of God become like this background white noise. It becomes like something that we can't fully comprehend. I was sitting with someone recently who had had been in this position for years and years, and he, he made the comment to me that he doesn't really have much need. I don't know, I don't, I don't understand all of this excitement and this passion about singing about the grace of God. I'm pretty good, I've got it together. 35, 40 years in, in church, and the conviction is, yeah, it's nice, maybe for the person that really needs it. You see, Drafting off of a secondhand experience of God will leave us with a mind that's hard to the things of God. We don't understand other people's excitement. But then the third marker is the one right underneath that, the truer and deeper one, and it's this. They also have cold affections. Not just a hard mind, but cold affections. So this should be a litmus test for your soul. Am I on the second balcony trying to make sense of the glory of God? Well, I don't know. Is it always a secondhand experience of God based off of someone else's experience? And your mind is kind of hard to trying to understand why are other people so excited about it? And then lastly, your affections are cold. This is verse 15. It says this, Yes, to this day, wherever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. You see, these people, they have a veil that starts on their face, or pardon me, on Moses' face between him and the people, but then he says, no, but in, fa- in actuality, the veil is, is, is between them perpetually, that their minds have grown hard, and then he even takes it a step further, and he says the veil has been spread over their very heart, that their affections are dampened. I remember meeting this guy years ago. He became a dear friend of mine. And at the time, I was serving on staff at First Presbyterian Church Houston, the church that commissioned and sent us to plant this church five years ago. And 
I was employed by a Presbyterian church. He informed me of some information that I think he thought that I would think was very impressive. So he announced to me, he said, you know, I am an eighth generation Presbyterian. I can trace it all the way back to Scotland, the reformers, like that is my heritage. I was baptized, confirmed, and I am Presbyterian. Emphasis on every syllable, you know? And I was like, cool. (laughs) Yeah, good. Uh, Keep hanging out with us, you know? And he started to hang out with this community that we were forging. And and a couple months later, we got coffee, and he was very unsettled. And he said, I need help with something. I was like, what? What do you need help with? And he said, "I've I've been hanging out with these people. And he said, I've heard them pray, and they talk to God like they know him. And they talk to him like they love him. I've never had that. And it was the first moment where I was like, ah, okay, we can have a real conversation. And we started to work with one another. I got the great joy of discipling this, my friend, as he moved from the second balcony down to the front row. And the awareness for him, the litmus test, that all of a sudden the eyes being opened, that I have never gotten to hear the songs from up front, I've never had the experience of being folded into the story, was the recognition that I have never had a heart whose affections were warmed for the glory of God. And so my question to you, friends, before we can move on is this, do you have a partially obstructed view of the glory of God? Like you're in the room and I'm glad you're here, but you have to ask the the difficult questions at the outset. Has it always been veiled? Have you been drafting? Drafting off of someone else's experience with a mind that can't quite make sense of why this is so important and as a result, a heart that remains cold. You see, these are the marks of a of a veiled experience of God's glory, but then we get this beautiful picture of what is an unveiled experience of God's glory. And I want to share it with you because it is delightful. It's so good. Like God is available to you. And this text gives us three marks of what it looks like to have an unveiled experience of God's glory. The first is this, we have direct access Verse 18, and we all, now that's actually emphatic in the Greek. Maybe you can hear it there because he could have just said we, right? And we have, or pardon me, and we with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. But he doesn't just say we, he says we all. He's, he's in essence, he's setting it off against Moses. He's been talking about Moses and their experience. And he goes, Moses was the one that got to take the veil off and go into God's presence, but just Moses. And he says, now, we all, we everyone, we every single one of you, I don't know how else to say it, in essence, what he's saying. He's going, everybody here within earshot, you all have availability to go to where Moses went and better. Like, isn't there this sense in which we think about Moses as this great hero that went up into the glory storm cloud of God on the top of Mount Sinai and came back with a shining face. We go, well, that was Moses. But Moses would say, no, 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 but this is you. You're in the new covenant after what Jesus has accomplished and there is something more and better available to you than Moses. And he says, and we all have access. We have direct 
access to the very presence of God. We don't need a selfie anymore. We can go up the mountain. We can meet with God. And this is this invitation that we have this daily opportunity. Like we dream of a church, like of a community. When we talk about on the road again, hearts burning on the road, like what we long for for Seven Mile Road, we have a dream of men and women growing into maturity in Jesus where they are self-feeders. They're not waiting for Jeremiah to preach a sermon to them, for Peter or Michael to come and speak to them, to one of our great staff members to come and disciple them, or one of our elders to, to, to meet with their family and to pray over them. They're not waiting for someone with mitigated access. They are a people that go to the word with confidence and can make sense of it, and they're on their knees before God, and they're filled with the Spirit, and, and that the community is just a reminder of the gospel that continues to encourage and to send out. We have a dream towards that end. It's one of the reasons we have this discipleship track, putting tools in your hands, saying here's, in a sense, the way that you move up the mountain to, to meet more fully with God. Even starting February 9th, if you haven't heard, we're doing Mining God's Word, a simple course over 12 weeks to train you how on your own to read the text deeply and truly, to behold the glories of Jesus alone with the Word that daily you can be feeding yourself. Maybe you ought to consider jumping into this course with us. Maybe it, what does it look like for you to, to enjoy the blessings of unmitigated access to God's glory? You can go up the mountain. You see, we have direct access. But not just that, that direct access produces freedom. Did you see in verse 17, it says this, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So Paul's making this argument to the Corinthian church that we have grander access than Moses, that the veil has been removed, we have been ushered into the very glory of God, and he said, let me tell you what happens there. You are so profoundly loved in the secret place. Like to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus in the secret place is to come into this place and all of a sudden be so awash with love and grace that you realize all of the ways that I have been timid and afraid and lacking courage and ashamed and hiding and posturing and pretending. Love comes and like a tidal wave washes it all away when we are really in his presence going, oh wow, the only one whose opinion in all the cosmos actually matters loves me deeply. Freedom. He says, where the spirit of the Lord is, where he's filling and refreshing you, you are so totally free with nothing to prove and nothing to earn ever again. Unmitigated access producing outrageous freedom. He had started the text by saying, we are very bold, not like Moses, meaning we don't have to pull a veil back down over what God is doing because the fullness of the glory of God has been revealed in Jesus and we get to shine in the world so that others might see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. We're not waiting for another revelation. We can fully and boldly display what God has done because of the way that his love has been poured out into our hearts. Well, lastly, the last mark of an unveiled experience of God's glory is this, transformation Transformation, verse 18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be a tadpole? Is that what you're doing earlier this week? 
You know, you think about a tadpole comes out of an egg and they, they actually, they have a tail. They have gills and they're herbivores. They swim in the water and they eat algae. And then one day, they pop out legs in the back. And all of a sudden, they have a tail and these legs. And I, I imagine they're like, what is happening? And then not just legs in the back, but then legs pop out in the front. And then this is crazy. They reabsorb their mouth. I don't know what that means. Their mouth goes back in and comes back out with a jawbone and teeth because now they're a carnivore. And then their tail gets reabsorbed and then their gills go away and they jump onto the land. And they, they eat different. They breathe different. They move different. You look at a tadpole and a frog and you're like, I don't know what connection there is the same word, metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. When we begin to enter unmitigated access to the glory of God, we are so transformed. God doesn't, Jesus didn't come to die to make you better, more moral, less of a jerk. He didn't bleed and die for that end. He came to make you new. Like a totally new person, metamorphosis, transformed, unmitigated access to the glory of God. It means we've got direct access which produces freedom and changes us completely. So how? We know what a veiled access is. We know what an unveiled. We know what it is to be in the second balcony and we know what it is to be on the front row, but how do you make the transition? I'd like to finish there by just sketching out two things real briefly. How do you make the transition from a second balcony to a front row seat on the glory of God? First is this. We turn. We turn. Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Turning is a powerful thing. My wife went to the women's retreat this weekend uh, with 71 of now her closest friends. She had a great time out at Camp Allen. Uh, I'm so glad she got that time away. We have three boys. So it was very restful for her, and rightfully so. A little bit less so for dad. You know, just me and the three this week. It was great. But bedtime with all three. Last night, I was trying to convince my three-year-old that we needed to go brush his teeth. And he finally said, okay, I'll go brush my teeth. And he said, I'm gonna do it alone. And he went into the bathroom and he's got his toothpaste and his toothbrush and he kept going, I can do it. I was like, buddy, I, let, let me help you. I can do it. Over and over and over. So I just stood in the door because what I knew is he can't do it. So I stood there and he, he can't, he's got the little toothpaste where you push the button and he was looking over his I can do it. I waited for a while until finally he turned to me. Can you do it? It's like, yes, yeah, I can, buddy. Uh, that's the turn. You can't make yourself good. You can't strive to make yourself a better person. All the grit in the world, I'm gonna do it better. I'm not gonna go back and do that thing that I keep doing over and over. I'm not gonna treat that person that way. I'm not gonna keep going back to that addiction that wants to tell my story. I'm not gonna, and we think, I can do it. And God's just standing there going, just, just turn around. Just, just turn. 
and the veil will be removed. It's a turn of dependence, of desperation, of a recognition, I can't do this. And God's going, ah, I'm so glad you finally realized it. I've been waiting here with all of the power in the world ready to wrap you up in love. Friend, if you've yet to trust your life to Jesus, to recognize his love and his grace that is for you perpetually, the first note in moving from your obstructed view at a distance to actually stepping into the experience is you just have to turn around. Just turn to him and go, I need you. Admit you're a sinner and believe that he's a savior. It sounds so simple, but it is so transformative. It's as if the usher comes and grabs your hand and goes, this seat is not going to do. Come with me. You see, it starts by turning. But then secondly, we behold. Did you hear the word in verse 18? Beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image. When we turn, it doesn't all happen in one fell swoop. That Jesus has done what we couldn't do. When he breathed his last on the cross, when he died, the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom because the presence of the glory of God had been protected from the people of God because they couldn't handle it. If we were in the presence of a holy God, we would be consumed. But because Jesus stood between man and God and died on our behalf, shedding blood to pay the price for your sin, as he did, the veil was finally and completely ripped so that the glory of God was available to us. And when we turn, we have access there. But the interesting reality is that it's not just that when you turn, you went from a tadpole to a frog. You are a new creature, but you're in process. It takes time. It is a consistent process called sanctification. You are justified. You have right access before God. You are a new creature, but it will take time. And the way that you, after turning, continue to be transformed from one degree of glory into the next is you behold him. You set your gaze firmly on Jesus. Doesn't it just sound so simple? God has made it so accessible to you. Turn and behold Turn around and daily set your gaze on him. Look at him. Enjoy him. All of a sudden you'll feel like, I'm in the story. It's starting to fall down around me. I'm hearing the notes in new and fresh ways. This is electric. You see, we are a people that want to behold Jesus. We want to do it daily. We want to do it weekly. The way that we've structured Sunday gathering is in the attempt that you would see Jesus clearly. You're invited in and then we confess sin and assurance of pardon and then he speaks with us and feeds us and sends us. Sunday morning is all about us seeing Jesus clearly. But then we want you to daily experience this. In house churches, we're answering questions to help us identify where we are on these movements of the seven mile road. And this week in house church, you'll be introduced to these questions. These are the individual discipleship plan questions that are helping us answer the question, what does it look like for me to gaze at Jesus, to behold his glory? The first two questions are yes or no questions about turning. It's, have I been baptized in a gospel-proclaiming, Bible-believing church? And can I clearly articulate the gospel and my testimony? We want to help people understand what does it look like to turn and to begin to move out of the balcony. And then we ask three questions real simply that you'll get to chew on this week in house church. What does it look like for you to study the Bible daily? Are you doing that currently? Do you have the tools that you need to do that? To daily go up the mountain and meet with God in response to what he's done for you? Are you enjoying prayer? Or is prayer an awkward exercise that doesn't include the affections of your heart? Let's talk about what it would look like this year in 2021 to say, I want to learn to pray, to 
to meet with God, to have unhurried time with him where I'm not rushing to the next thing, but I'm delighting in the fact that I have access to the God of the universe. And lastly, do I understand what I believe? That we want to continue to have minds that understand, even as we talk about the minds that can grow hard to the things of God, we want to think deeply about God so that it would continue to stir our affections. And so do you understand what you believe and why? We would love to go on the journey with you of starting to make sense of your theological underpinnings and, and how you can understand truly all that is yours in Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, we don't have to live perpetually with an obstructed view. Jesus has gone to great lengths to bring heaven to earth. It's available to you. It's available to you. Would you turn? Would you behold him? I long that God would give birth in us to a community that beholds Jesus with unveiled face. Would you pray with me? Father, it strikes me that some of us need to repent in this moment. Repent of the ways that we, um, we've just grown comfortable with obstructed view. We've grown comfortable with being at a distance from you. I pray that right now by your spirit, you would put a longing in hearts for more than that. That we wouldn't be satisfied with that. And I'm begging God that what you would do in our midst is that you would open our eyes to the gifts that you have given us, that we would be stunned and we would experience more and more of you, that Jesus, you would meet with the men and the women and the children of this community in real ways, that we would have people that daily come to your presence and delight in you. And that as a result, we would be so completely transformed that your glory would be shining through us. God, make it true. I pray that we would be people that behold you, that see you, that look intently at you with unveiled face until one day you come again and we get to see you in the fullness. We can't wait. And we say, Jesus, come quickly. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.